0: Final message in the series we've been in this fall called Misconceptions of God. We've been studying a number of distorted or inaccurate pictures that people, both in the church and outside of the church, have of God. And to get the real picture, we've been looking at the narratives of Jesus. And our goal during this series has been to help people fall in love with the God Jesus knows. To help people fall in love with the God Jesus knows. Jesus is the exact representation of God. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this in chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The sun is the exact radiance of God's glory. To understand who God is. Get to know Jesus. That's what we've been doing this fall and i hope that that you know god more now as we have spent these weeks together than when we first started today and in our final message one of the most we're, we'll talk about one of the most prevalent misconceptions that people have of god and that's that god created people for the sole purpose of efficiency and productivity it's almost as if god created us to be like machines, that we are efficient and productive, that we were made to multitask. Now, I'm not really great at multitasking. I try, and I'm not really good at it. My wife is really good at it. and She can do a lot of things all at one time and keep it straight, and her mom's like that. In fact, it, if you ever sit around the meal table at my wife's home, my, my, my wife's mom doesn't really sit very much. She's very busy serving everyone else. She'll sit on the very edge of her seat just waiting to see if your tea glass just gets a little bit low or if I, I need another biscuit or another helping of green beans. I love her green beans. She slow cooks them in the pressure cooker and puts a little sugar in them. Well, we've diverted. Let me get get us back. Lunch is coming. If you really think about it, God did make our bodies to multitask. We have a circulatory system that at this very moment is providing oxygenated blood to all of our organs. Our digestive system is at work on that sugar shack donut your Sunday school teacher brought to you this morning. Your endocrine system is providing hormones that have been secreted into the blood system to keep your body regulated and your metabolism and your temperature ongoing. Our immune system is working hard, defending against bacteria. Our lymph system is protecting against infection. Our central nervous system is making sure that we breathe and that our eyelids blink and all of those other things that just happen without us even thinking about it. Not to mention our muscular system or our skeletal system, our respiratory system. All of these systems God created within us, and they work simultaneously. So in a way, we were made to multitask. But I want us to think about multitasking in another way, and that's where we try to do too much and we press out God. We don't rest enough, and we don't have margin in our lives. Our bodies are not machines. God made our bodies to need sleep and rest and food and water. Our spirits need laughter and joy. Our minds need to be renewed and recharged. Our souls need to drink deeply of the river of the water of life. God shows us this after creating the writer of Genesis, says that God rested, that God commanded us in the same way to take one day out of seven to pull back and rest. The gift of the Sabbath, this built-in day off, God provided enough for us that we could work six days and have provision for that seventh day. But our culture's not really good at allowing this, and we in the church have taken on a lot of that culture, and we're busy, busy, busy people. Even faithful Christians have struggles living out the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Now, for some families, it's just survival. If you're a single parent, sometimes you have to work two or three jobs to make ends meet, and that might include that seventh day, and there's not a lot of time for rest. And I totally understand that. There are some in our in our a community that they don't really have a choice. But there are others of us who take on way too much and we just run and run and then we fall in bed in the evening and then we repeat the, th- the same thing the next day and the next day. We live in a 24 7 world, don't we? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, always on always in a hurry. You can even drive up the interstate and see how many minutes your emergency room wait would be if you happen to go there. Or if you're in a restaurant, you can see uh, on the drive, if you're in the drive through how many seconds it will take until your order will be processed or will, you will be uh, waited upon 24-7. Even 7-Eleven stores that used to be open 7-to-11 are now open 24-7. Go figure, the Seven Eleven that's 24-7. We are a busy people. And we run from school to after school to games and homework and evening work. We're tethered to our electronic devices. And um, this generation does not know what it's like to be away from, from work. When I was growing up, you know, my dad worked a lot and he got home late. But when he got home, he was home. And he didn't have constant work or messages or things that were in front of him because of that device, but it's different today. It's hard for many of us to take a break from that. Some even sleep with their cell phones. Don't raise your hand if you do that, but some people even have their cell phone either by their bed or under their pillow. Some of our young people, I'm not saying specific names and just reading this as I'm studying for this week, some of our young people in our culture actually respond to text messages in the middle of the night. They will um, keep their phone and be texting back and forth um, at wee hours in the morning. A Nielsen survey from a few years ago, but still applies today, says that teenage girls sent and received 3,952 text messages a month. Wow. Now the boys if you think you're getting off lucky you sent 2815 text messages I mean sent and received so that's a lot of messaging back and forth it's mind boggling and if you adults think I'm you know just picking on the students how many times a day do you check your phone how many times a day is your, are your thumbs working i've got to think about this too How often am I always checking that to see if anybody has anything to say to me? James Bryan Smith, in his book, The The Good and Beautiful God, uh, quotes an economist named Jerry Rifkin, who writes, It's ironic that in our culture we're so committed to saving time that we feel increasingly deprived of the very thing we value. Despite our alleged efficiency, we seem to have less time for ourselves and far less time for each other. We've quickened the pace of life only to become less patient. We've become more organized and less spontaneous, less joyful. We're better prepared to act on the future, but less able to enjoy the present or to reflect on the past. Today, we've surrounded ourselves with time-saving technological gadgetry only to be overwhelmed by plans that cannot be carried out. We're doing too much at the same time. Appointments that can't be honored, schedules that can't be fulfilled, deadlines that can't be met. Our mantra is, quote, we are only as valuable as what we produce. Efficiency and productivity, our culture says. This leads to a false narrative that says what we produce determines our value. And the more we produce, the more valuable we are that we were made to multitask, efficiency and productivity. But the gospel story that we just read tells us otherwise. It's set in the last year of Jesus' life, late in that last year. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke records that Jesus is facing Jerusalem. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now this was not his final entrance into Jerusalem the week that he would be, per, be crucified. But, but this was a time when he knew that was coming and he faced Jerusalem ready for that particular day to come. Jesus and his disciples were on the road as they commonly were and they depended on people to put them up in the evening and to provide a good meal and a night's rest And then the next day they would be ready to go out and to continue to minister to people and reach people. So in this particular place, Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples came to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We know that because John chapter 11 and 12 tell us that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were siblings. Mary and Martha, unmarried sisters, the brother of uh, and their brother, Lazarus. You know, he is the one Jesus brought back from the dead. They were committed followers of Jesus and dear friends of Jesus. And the scripture says, when Jesus arrived, Mary opened her home to him. She greeted Jesus. She, I mean, uh, Martha opened her home to him. She greeted Jesus and extended hospitality to Jesus. And then, rather than spending some time like Mary would, she went immediately to the kitchen and began to prepare a feast for the, for the disciples and for Jesus. Luke records that Martha was distracted by all of the preparations. And then she got upset because her sister Mary wasn't helping as she had expected her to. And she goes to Jesus and she complains. Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? You tell her to help me. Have you ever envisioned how this may have gone down? Have you ever wondered why this is in the Bible? Can you think about, in your imagination, Jesus sitting with all of the disciples and maybe some others gathered around, And Mary, one of those at his feet, and he's teaching. And then Martha comes along out of the kitchen, disrupting everything that's happening, looks straight at Jesus and says, Jesus, you tell her to help me. And the Greek New Testament says that this is an imperative, which is a command. Jesus, you tell her to help me. She totally ignores her sister, doesn't even make eye contact with her sister. Jesus, you tell her to help me. She's triangling Jesus in, getting trying to get him to do her talking to her sister on a tangent. Anybody ever try to ta- triangle you into their situation? Right? Instead of saying, Mary, can you help me? She says, Jesus... You tell her it's your responsibility. Tell her to stop listening to you and help me. Then Jesus addresses Martha. Martha, Martha. You're worried and upset. You're anxious about many things. Perhaps about all of the things that she thought that Jesus and the disciples needed to eat that night. You're upset about all of these things but few things are needed just a simple meal would be fine mary some maybe some bread and some something to drink and we would be okay or indeed one and mary then he says chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her jesus helps us to focus on the better thing yes we have A lot that we'd like to do. Yes, there are plates spinning. Yes, there are schedules to be kept. There are games to be attended. There are assignments to be accomplished. There is work to be done. But Jesus says, don't take your eyes off of the better thing. The better thing is to sit at his feet. We could all use a little help focusing on the better thing. Sitting at the feet of Jesus taking in the word of God, the bread of life, that we might live a well-paced life. And I believe when we focus on the better thing, when we sit at the feet of Jesus, we are better equipped to accomplish the other tasks that are set out before us. Because you know that faith brings about works. Faith without works is dead. So there's the the being part, and there's the doing part. So here are some steps toward the well-paced life that we might live into them, and I'm going to try to do this very briefly. If you're taking notes, you can follow along. The first is remember that you are a human being, not a human doing. God created us in his image as human beings. Yes, the doing comes, but that's not our sole purpose. God uh, reminds us in Genesis chapter 1. So God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And then, um, in the interest of time, the rest of that passage says that God gave us dominion over the creation. That God said that there would be responsibility. That we would have work to do to take care for the creation. But that was not our sole purpose. Our sole reason for existing is being People created in the image of God, created to be in a relationship with God, who then would be stewards of all that he gives. And God creates c- commands for us to work, but also c- commands for us to rest and gives us the gift of the Sabbath to withdraw from the busyness of life that we might be still and know God. This is the rhythm, secondly, that Jesus practiced You see Him over and over again in the New Testament withdrawing and praying. This is practicing the rhythm of Jesus. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, you see these verses. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where He prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for Him, And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And then Jesus said, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. But that preaching and teaching work and the ministry and uh, healing and serving that Jesus went about doing, came out of the overflow of his abiding with the Father, of his being still, the rhythm of Jesus. We also need to be self-defined, third, to be self-defined, to know who we are, as we've said, created in the image of God as human beings, not human doings, and establish some boundaries. And this is where many Christians have a really hard time. We don't know how to say no. We just say yes to everything. And I believe that we need to know who we are, whose we are, and that we also must say no to some good things so that we can say yes to the better things. Say no to some good things so that we can say yes to the better things. Mary, as you've heard Jesus say, chose that which was better. Does this mean that you can now go to the MDM team, ministry development team and resign from your your teams and the places where you're serving and say, you know, Pastor Bob said that it's all about being that I don't need to do anymore. No, no, no. Don't do that. Right. But next time you do receive a call and next time you want to do something, step back and ask God if this is the better thing. And God My prayer is, will lead you to serve in that way. Two more. The fourth is to create and leverage margin in your schedule. If you look at your Bible, there are margins around the words. You You don't read books that are all printed page, there's margin. It gives your eyes some rest and helps you to be focused. We need margin in our lives, some leverage. Dan Bagby, my seminary professor at BTSR, said, only plan two-thirds of your day in the church because the church will fill up the other third really quick. And I believe that's true. Schedule some margin in your day. And Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Church, says, we are too busy not to pray. We are called to love God and to love neighbor, to love the Lord God with all our heart, our stre- our soul, our strength and mind, and to love neighbor as ourselves. We're not supposed to just stop doing things. But our doing is out of the overflow of our being. The next time you sit down and read your Bible in Luke chapter 10, back up a little bit in the chapter And read what comes before the story of Mary and Martha. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, Jesus is receiving a question about who is my neighbor. And then Jesus tells the parable of a man who was beaten and left for dead in a ditch. And two religious people came by the ditch, saw the man, crossed on the other side, and went on about their way. But then the third person that came was a Samaritan man who stopped and ministered to the man in the ditch, pulled him out and helped him and took him to a safe place. And then Jesus said to the one asking the question, which was a good neighbor? Which was the neighbor to the man who was hurt? And that was easy. The response was, well, the Samaritan was the good neighbor. And then Jesus said to the man who asked the question, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We should not look at the story of Mary and Martha in isolation. We must view it in its greater context. If we only look at the story of Mary and Martha in and of itself, then we might draw the conclusion that we're supposed to just sit and listen. But just before it, Jesus says, go and do. So our call is to sit and listen And go and do. Sit and listen, go and do. But I believe the better thing is to sit and listen because out of sitting and listening to Jesus, we are able to go and do. We are to be still, to slow down and be still. When my daughter, who is now 11, was little, we'd be out for a walk. And she would stop and pick up every little bug, every worm, every caterpillar, smell every flower. Oh, Daddy, look at this leaf. Oh, Daddy, look at that bird. It reminds us that we are to pause in life and take time and be still. Get in the longest line at Walmart. Get in the longest line at the toll if you're paying tolls. Make an effort to speak to someone who's lonely and and don't be turned halfway away from them the whole time because you're busy trying to get to the next place. Be still and listen. Slow down a bit and I believe you'll hear God. The Psalmist reminds us to be still. As I read the scripture, allow God to center your heart on the better thing to be still. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know and know that I am Be still and know that I, be still and know, be still and, be still, be. Let us pray.